Matthew 28, 1 through 7. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards, the guards shook for fear of him because and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. 
Please stand with us. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Oh my soul, worship His which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed by this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. 
Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words, and they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Please remain seated. This is from John 20, 1 through 9. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping in and looking, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple 
who had first come to the tomb then also entered. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Please stand with us. Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on that cross. Accused in absence of wrong. Sin washed away in your blood. Too much to make sense of it all. I know that your love breaks my fall. The scandal of grace, you died in my place, so my soul will live. Oh, to be like you, give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you, forever the hope in my John 20, 11 through 17. <clears throat> but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Please stand with us. Christ the Lord is risen today. Twenty-four, thirteen through 27. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also, some of the women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came, 
saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Please stand with us. Twenty-four, twenty-eight through 43. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. 
But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in with them to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do, you, do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, that it is my, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of the joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Stand with us, please. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame. We fix our eyes upon the cross and run to Him who showed great love and Still risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, we are one with him again. Come away, come away, come and rise up from the Come away, come away, come and rise up from the 
this scripture is Luke 24, 44 through 48. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Stay with us. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still. again for just a second. Father, your word is truth, and I pray this morning that you'll help us to take this in, in this regard of the fruits of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. Father, each one of us comes in with certain needs, and we know that you're ultimately the only one who can meet those. Lord, Jesus' resurrection is both the demonstration of your power and the promise 
that all of our needs are absolutely and fully met eventually in Christ himself. And I pray that the hope of the resurrection, Lord, is what we take away today. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, you know, uh, talked about this first service. Sometimes you're, you're uh, fearful of repeating yourself, but with that in mind, the early church talked more about the resurrection of Jesus than his crucifixion. And basically, since the Reformation, the evangelical arm of the church, at least, tends to look to the crucifixion, and there's a reason for that. You remember back in that day, 500 years ago, the real question was, how do I know I can be just before a holy God? So the whole question was justification. So if you were in the Roman church of that day and you had money, you could pay for indulgences, and that would take care, so they said, of some of that issue, that sin issue. You could do works of repentance. That was good, too, so they said. But people still knew, my conscience still bothers me, and so what do I do with that? So along comes Luther, and not just Luther, but others along with him. And they said, you know, the issue is this. To be just before God, you need someone to take your sins away, fully and absolutely. And so from that point of need, it was the crucifixion where we understood Jesus took the penalty due my sin. That became key in the Reformation. And so the evangelical church through the ages, last 500 years or so, we tend to talk about Jesus died for our sins because that was the thought about justification. The early church, though, talked more forcefully and more frequently about his resurrection. And I think it's for this reason. So if you've got a Jewish prophet from Palestine, another one, and he comes along and he does some signs or miracles, you're like, who knows? You know, and other people have done signs and miracles too. So here's one more. Or if you say another guy comes along and he says, I speak for God. And you're like, well, okay, there's another one that speaks for God. So what? But if that one, through his own power, comes back from the dead and never dies again, then that's a different issue. Because the singular thing that mankind could never do anything about, and, and everybody faced the same challenge, was death. I'm going to die, and I can't escape that. So here's the claim. Someone has conquered, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that last enemy, which is death itself. Now, that was a message worth hearing about. And that's why the church has historically, you know, whether you think of the Lord's Supper for us here monthly, for other churches weekly, celebrate, we remember the Lord in his death and in his resurrection. But also singularly once a year, about the same time in the calendar that Jesus suffered and died and rose again, we singularly remember his resurrection as well. So we're going to talk this morning more really about some of the fruit of Jesus' resurrection than the actual event itself. And we're actually going to take a walk around the block before we get there. So you really do need to be patient with me this morning. You Bear with me. We're going to look at some Old Testament passages. We're going to talk a little bit about the Exodus, a little bit about Psalm 68, and then we'll get into Ephesians 4. So bear with me. We'll take a stroll towards the resurrection and some of the fruits of the resurrection. So you remember the story of the Exodus, and I'm not going to go through chapter and verse on this, but broadly, big picture, the story of the Exodus was Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going down and confronting the most powerful king and army and entity on earth when he went down to redeem his people from Egypt. And so there are these signs of power in which he confronts the Egyptian magicians and Pharaoh. And, you know, the magicians can do some of those tricks, those signs of power, too. They get to one and they finally say, you know what, we can't do this one. And that means that the finger of God is with this guy, Moses. There's more than human power or earthly or demonic power at work in this guy. This is the finger of God. And you remember that last act of power was the death of the firstborn. And God basically said, if you believe in me and if you want to be saved... You slay a lamb, you drain its blood, and you wash that blood around your door opening. And anyone who takes refuge in that house so marked by the blood, the angel of death will pass over that house and all in it. And anyone who does not take refuge under the blood of the lamb, in that household, the firstborn will die. And of course, that's exactly how it happened. 
Yahweh's ultimate act of power was to show that he had the power of life and of death. Now it was God himself who was battling Pharaoh and his armies and the gods that Egypt believed in. Remember, the Jews had nothing to do with what was going on, did they? They just saw the miracles. But with the death of the firstborn, you remember Pharaoh finally says, get out of here. You remember what his counselor said? Our land is ruined. This first-rate power has become a second-rate nation because Pharaoh hardened his heart and says, I'm not giving up. So God leads Israel out. And remember what they were before. They were slaves. They were in captivity. He frees the slaves and he leads them out. And they're going to go toward Sinai. But do you remember what they leave with? They leave with the spoils of Egypt. This was warfare and Yahweh defeated Egypt and all of its gods and all of its power. And the Jews went out with the spoils of war, the silver and gold of the Egyptians, just as God said they would. It was warfare and Yahweh was the victor. He was the king. He was the savior. Now, he marches them to Sinai. Stick with me. We're going to keep going here. He marches them to Sinai and he descends on Sinai, doesn't he? Exodus 20 is a stirring passage, smoke and fire and trumpets blaring so loudly the people are terrified. Yahweh comes down on Sinai and he gives them the covenant. He gives them the ten words on the stone tablets. And he tells them how to interact with him in this new covenant he's going to be in with them. And so they make a tabernacle like he told them to. And Yahweh is now dwelling in the midst of his company, his covenant people. And he said, I want you to do this. I'm going to be right in the middle of you. And the cloud that represents my presence, it'll be above that tabernacle. And he said, when the cloud rises, I'm moving you to a new place. And so you're going to follow me. And when you see the cloud rise, you're to take the silver trumpets and you're to blare them. And it's calling Israel to get in marching order and follow me because we're going to go north into the land of promise. And when he did this, this is what Moses said. This is from Numbers 1035. So the cloud rises, the trumpets blare, the children scream. <laughs> We're good. We're good. And Moses, Moses cries out, Arise, Yahweh, let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. So Yahweh who battled, who fought, who overcame the Egyptians, Lord, You go with us as we go into the land of promise. You be our conquering Savior and King as we go forward. So the Exodus and then Numbers, they're going into the land. And of course, you know that first generation, they never made it. They died in the wilderness, in the desert. But 400 years later, King David took this element from Moses. He takes Numbers 1035 to start Psalm 68. And he he is still going with the themes from the Exodus, that God is the mighty, powerful warrior king. He's the savior. He's going to confront his enemies, and he's going to take them up, just as Yahweh took them up to Sinai. God is going to take them up to his new habitation. So listen to this from Psalm 68. Now he starts with Numbers 1035. God shall arise, and his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. They're on the winning side. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts, the one who led Israel through the deserts. His name is Yahweh. Exult before him. He's the father of the fatherless, protector of widows, God in his holy habitation or his holy dwelling. God settles the solitary in a home. And listen to this verse. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Remember, going back to the Exodus, Jewish slaves led out and not in poverty, but to prosperity with the wealth of Egypt with them. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. He says in verse 17, The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Exodus account says that when Pharaoh wanted to chase Israel before they could finally escape, 
it says he had 400 choice chariots and he had other chariots. But David says, compared to God's army, Pharaoh just had this much power. God's chariots, his divine army, if you will, is beyond count. And then last, listen to this, verse 18, you ascended on high. Now David's looking back to Sinai, but I think he's also thinking about the tabernacle having been brought into Jerusalem on Mount Zion. On Mount Zion. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. You've liberated the slaves. You've brought them up with you. And you've received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that Yahweh, Adonai, that the Lord God may dwell there. So you've got David looking back 400 years to the Exodus. He sees God as a warrior. He defeats the enemy and he takes the spoils of war. He receives them from the conquered and then he distributes them to his own. Now we're bringing all of this into Ephesians 4. So when Paul wanted to talk to the Ephesian believers or to you and I today, the, the way he framed God giving those in his church grace gifts, spiritual gifts, the ability to be part of God's work in the world today, he uses Psalm 68 as the lens. And Psalm 68 itself is trading back on the Exodus account. If you remember back in Ephesians 2, Paul said this. He didn't use the direct comparison, but it's the theme. He said, you guys were like slaves in Egypt because you weren't free. You weren't at liberty. You were subject not to Pharaoh. You were subject to the God of this world. You were no better than slaves under his power. You couldn't do as you ought. You weren't enjoying life. You were prisoners. You were slaves. You were captives. That was your state before Jesus liberated you. That was chapter 2. Subject to the God of this world, the most vile, malevolent creature present. You remember, Pharaoh simply foreshadows the power of Satan himself. Three times in this epistle, Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, we know he's in a prison when he writes this. And so on one hand, he says, hey, I'm a prisoner for Christ. I'm here for Christ. But the flip side is he's using the language of a captive because that goes right back to the Exodus again. God led the captives out of captivity into his own holy array. He led them out of captivity. You remember elsewhere, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, even if you're a slave, if you have Christ, you're Christ's free man. Paul says, I'm one of the captives, as it were, that Christ has led out of captivity into liberty. Now look at Ephesians 4, starting at verse 7, and we'll go through verse 13. He says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, these grace gifts. Verse 8, therefore it says, and it is Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, now he's not talking about Yahweh in the Old Testament, now he's applying this to Jesus. Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So now Paul is saying Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament, and he has now ascended into heaven itself in his resurrection and his ascension 40 days later. And he describes this or fleshes this out in verses 9 and 10. In saying he, Jesus, ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He had left heaven to come down to earth in the incarnation. The one who descended is also the one who ascended went back to heaven, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Jesus is the conquering king. Jesus here is meant to be seen as Yahweh was in Egypt, or as Yahweh was as in his throne in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Jesus is now, he is the theme to which everything has led. He now sits in heaven. He's the conquering king because he's defeated the final enemy, death itself. He's ascended to his throne. He's received gifts, the spoils of war, he is now redistributing the spoils of war to his own. He gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of service to build up his body until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Paul takes all the imagery of Yahweh in the Exodus and Yahweh that resided in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and he applies it to Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the victorious saving king. He's defeated all of the enemies that we never could. He's led us who were captives into freedom, out of captivity, and he's given us the spoils of war. Colossians 2.15 says it this way, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, and those are spiritual demonic powers under Satan. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. It's the thought of the victory parade again. The enemies of Christ, sin, death, and Satan being paraded in Christ's victory parade. Like Yahweh in the Exodus, Jesus had no help in bringing about deliverance. You remember the Exodus account? They simply watched the miracles occur, and then they walk out in victory. And that's the same thing here. Jesus went down on his own. He suffered on the cross alone. He defeated sin, death, and Satan alone in his resurrection from the dead. We contribute nothing to our deliverance from our captivity. He is Yahweh of the Old Testament, and he is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's been declared King of kings and Lord of lords through that resurrection. Now, there's two primary applications for this. And the first is this. If someone asked you, and this is not a trick question, it's a great question for anyone. If someone asked you, if you died today, would you go to heaven? What would you say? And if you pause, because you're not sure, or if you say, I'm not sure, I hope I'd go to heaven, or I think I'd go to heaven. If you're not sure, then this first point of application is for you. And I say this as one who's been in your shoes. And the thing is this, if that's your state and you don't know for yourself, Jesus is my savior king, you're a slave in Egypt. Pharaoh, Satan, is your God. He's your ruler. And you live under his benefit package, which is no benefit at all. You don't get life, you get death. And your life is circumscribed by whatever he says. Because you're not free, you are a slave. You're a slave to yourself and you're a slave to the God of this world. You remember the Egyptians? They got whatever the Egyptians got. Isn't this interesting? If you were a Jew and you sheltered under the, the blood of the lamb, you got life. You kept life. But if you were an Egyptian and you didn't shelter under the blood, you got death. Someone in your household got death. Friends, we don't have to work to get death. We start there. We are in the place of death until Jesus liberates us. And he does that simply through the offer of salvation. It's by grace through faith. We don't do anything. We don't contribute to it. He gives us. He's the Savior. He's the victor. He offers us salvation and life. And that's the thing. Nothing else is worth knowing in life. Um, hope everybody that knows the Lord here, you've got memories of what it was like to be without Christ and to either be lonely or to be guilt-ridden or to be ashamed or whatever it was that you felt emotionally those were pangs that indicated our slavery to ourselves and our own sin and Satan, that our conscience wasn't clear. Hebrews says the only thing that can clear a human conscience is the blood of Christ. So until that point, you live as a captive in captivity under Satan's rule. So if you're not sure, if you say today, I am not sure, Christ is the answer. His resurrection is proof he can give you eternal life. We were rebels. He says, come into my kingdom I'm the king, I'll give you life, joy, pleasures forevermore. Now, I know most of us have already taken that position. We've joined Jesus' army, as it were. We're, we're the captive that was a slave. Now we're walking out with King Jesus. And this is the big thing I want to ask of us this morning on the application. And this is from the resurrection. Think about this for just a minute. If you're Christ, he has given you grace gifts. He has given you special abilities to serve him and understand where they came from. The Jews walked out of Egypt with silver and gold, the spoils of war, because Yahweh defeated Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. In other words, the cost of the spoils of war for the Jews 
was Yahweh defeating his enemy. The grace gifts you and I receive today are the spoils of war also, and the cost of the spoils of war was Jesus' death and resurrection. So imagine this. If I belittle the gift Jesus has given me, if I belittle or minimize the gift Jesus has given to someone else, I am in fact belittling Jesus' death and resurrection because every grace gift he gives is from the spoil of war. He can only give them because he suffered, died, and rose from the dead. These are the spoils of the victor king who overcame sin and death only by his own death and then his own resurrection. So for Christians, one of the big takeaways for me from the resurrection is the gifts you and I have are so costly that we cannot afford to think lightly of them or to not invest ourselves in the way God has gifted us to be about the business of the king. We serve a warrior king. He is not just a savior, he is a warrior. And he has given us the spoils of war and they were costly. And we need to treat them like the costly gifts that they were and they are. Eternal life for rebels, captive set free to those who walk in Jesus' victory parade, eternal life and the spoils of war forever. Father, thank you that you loved us to the point of death of your son. Lord Jesus, help us to honor you by simply entrusting our souls and their safekeeping into your saving care. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did what no one else could do. You defeated sin and Satan and death, and that victory was declared in your resurrection. Lord, thanks that you reign in heaven today, leading your church, giving those grace gifts, until the day you return again, Revelation 19, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to rule and to reign forever. Amen. Please stand with us.
Christmas. Christmas. 